Um, my name is Brady. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, shockingly. Uh, and, and, and last week, we, we decided together as a church, actually we didn't make the decision as a church, it was really kind of just a couple of us, but that we would all together memorize a verse of scripture. How exciting is that? Now, now I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not going to ask anyone to, to randomly stand up and say it, but would you, no, just kidding. Uh, but together as a community, we're going to say this. Now, it was, it was 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I'm, I'm going to just say it once to just kind of get the, the pump primed for all of us. It says, for our sake, he, now who's the he talking about? God. Well, hey, Jesus is the correct answer in every uh, message. So yes, God, Jesus is God, but this is particularly more the Father, okay? So he, the Father, made him. Now, who said Jesus? Now, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we're going to put this verse on the screen. We're all going to say it together. It's going to be great. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was amazing. Give yourself a big hand. That's, that's awesome. That was trick. Don't clap for yourself. That's weird. That's weird. Don't do that. And if you, if you don't, we had these cards that we gave out. And if you want to continue to memorize them, we may or may not have some for you. Um. You know, here's the thing. Um, we're going we're gonna to get a little bit extra today. We're going to get a little bit extra today. We believe that church, even this part of church, the, the gathering, should be a participatory um, thing. It's not like a movie where you, where you park your car, you go inside, you get your concessions, maybe a donut and some coffee, and you walk in and you spectate. That's not what church is supposed to be. Um, now, I get it during the music portion. It's much easier to figure out how am I supposed to participate. Because right? I can stand up when, when the officer commands me to stand up, right? I can stand up. I can, I can sing as well. I can raise my hands. I, I can participate. Uh, but it's harder to figure out how I'm supposed to participate when we're uh, getting into God's word and, and one person up, is up here teaching his word. So I'm going to give you a, a few hints on how, maybe a few tips on how you can participate. One is there's this word, this beautiful word, and, and it means truly, it means yes, it means I agree. And the word is amen. amen. You guys familiar with that word? Now, if someone who is teaching the word of God says something that you agree with, that, that, that you're, you, you're, you're right on, you think yes, you can say amen out loud. I mean, like seriously, from, from where you're sitting, you can say out loud towards the stage. It's okay. Um, Eric won't arrest you. It's fine, okay? You could also say if maybe, maybe perhaps someone like Renault gets on a roll and you're feeling it, you really feel like this is from the Spirit of God, you could say, preach it. <laughs> preach it. Yeah, that, that is okay. It's acceptable. These are acceptable church words or phrases. Now, a word might be a little much for you. I'm an introvert at heart. It, you might not believe it. It's true. I'm an introvert. And so sometimes speaking in public is not your favorite thing. So you don't even have to say a word. You could give a holy groan, which is, mmm. You got that? Mmm. You could do that. And if you're really feeling it, you could nod. Mmm. 
Mm. And if you want, if you want, it's kind of like when you're worshiping, you raise your hands, you can kind of give the air high five. Mm. Mm. Totally. Preach it. Amen. And you could combine them and you could interact with them. So, so as we are, are, are in the word of God, this is us together interacting with God's word, praying that the spirit of God would speak to us in our hearts. And that's what we're going to do. Now, here's the thing. I know after that demonstration, you all will be shocked at this next statement. I wasn't always a pastor. I know, it's crazy, I know, but Brady, you're so good at it, I know, hey, it's okay, stop it, seriously, it's a little embarrassing, stop, but yeah, I wasn't always a pastor, there was a time in my life when I didn't know what I was going to do, when I didn't have any direction, any mission, any goal, any purpose, and that was difficult, I think I, most of us, if not all of us, have experienced this in our life. There's, there's a point in time where you think, what was I uniquely created to do? Like, there's got to be something that I was created to do, that, that I can do uniquely, differently than any other, purpose, than any other person. Uh, we were created to have purpose, and when we live our lives aimlessly without purpose, it's difficult. There's, there's some sort of, sort of void inside, and we seek to find our identity, our fulfillment, and all kind of other things as we do this, but it's not just that we were created to be someone, right, a child of God, but we were all also created to do something. We were created to do something, and as I was searching in college to figure out what it was that I was supposed to do, I came across this idea that I wanted to be a musician, and I wanted to be a musician for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because uh, you got to uh, write songs and you got to play instruments, which I, I enjoyed, but you also got to be like a magician. Uh, not just because it sounds the same, but because you got to travel around and trick people into buying CDs. Now, if you were 15 or younger, you don't even know what that means. A CD was, was, a, was a disc that you'd place music on. Okay, you, you would, you'd place music on it and you could put it in your car if you had a CD player or, or your, your Discman. You guys remember Discmans? Come on now. Yeah, that was the boom box of the 90s. Uh, and, and, and you'd listen to music. So that's what I wanted to do. I was like, that is my thing. The only problem was I was kind of a, a step behind the rest because I was in college and I decided most, most people that want to be musicians, they start early on. I didn't do anything musical until my freshman year of college and I picked up the guitar. And then my musical aptitude wasn't as high as many people who, who decide to do music for a living. Uh, and so I had to work extra hard. I, I, had to, I had to figure out, okay, I've only got 24 hours in the day. I've got to be sleeping, you know, at least 12 of those. So, so what am I going to do with the, the other 12 hours of my day? They've got to be useful. And so there are, there are things that I can be doing that are helpful for me in becoming a musician, and there are things that are unhelpful, and I don't want to do those things. There are, there are people that were helpful for me, people that were encouraging, people that believed in me, people that supported me, and there were people that were unhelpful, naysayers. Uh, I, I also like to call them ex-friends, right? There, there were people that didn't support me, that weren't on my side, and so if I'm going to spend my time with people, I'm going to spend it with people who are helpful in me achieving what I believed that I was supposed to do, to be a musician, to trick people into buying CDs, right? That's what I needed to do. Now, there was another category of person that I didn't want to spend time with, and it wasn't because they were naysayers, it wasn't because they were mean or they didn't like me, it was actually the opposite. There there were a couple of girls that I dated that liked me, and there was two reasons why that was bad. Because one, when you like someone, you typically spend lots of time with that person. And the more time I spent with that person, the less time I had to practice, the less time I had to travel, the less time I had to write songs. 
And then also, when, when you like someone and they like you, you're typically happy. And happiness is bad for songwriting. It, it is. It really is. It's bad for songwriting. Ask Taylor Swift and Adele, right? I mean, those poor girls, if they ever have a successful relationship, I mean, their career's over. I feel sorry for them. But I could, I could relate. You write better songs when you're in the pit of despair because no one wants to hear, I'm content. I just am content, right? It just, it just, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. You don't feel it. You can't, you can't feel it. You can't do the blues to contentment. And so what I would do is I'd break up with them. So then I'd be in a heartache and then I'd have more time and it worked better. That's just kind of the way that I, I figured I would do things. It probably wasn't the best way. And I'm just guessing that all of us in some way, shape, or form have thought through these type of things. Uh, whether when you were in college, you decided, I want to graduate with honors, so I'm going to spend time with people who encourage me to go to class, people who can help me study, not with people who are partying all the time and saying, hey, let's stay out later. Let's stay out later. Oh, come on, you can just skip class. You've only skipped nine times. It's fine. Just skip another class. No big deal. Because the more time you spent with the people that help you, the greater chances that you would succeed than if you spent time with people who didn't help you. And we could translate this into uh, the spiritual life, right? We can talk about the idea that we're all called on mission. We all have a purpose, that we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. And there are people that are helpful, and that number is very few, and there are people that are detrimental to my journey with Christ and my being an ambassador for Christ. The only problem is being an ambassador necessarily entails that I'm with people, right? I mean, an ambassador is someone who is from another country, so we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, yet we are still here on this earth where the kingdom of heaven hasn't fully broken out yet, right? Uh, the, this is the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air right now, right? Until, until Jesus comes and, and, and redeems and restores all things. And so there are loads of people that that have a different goal, a different aim, a different direction, and they can be hindrances to us. And so the age-old question, back to uh, Jesus uh, when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, what, what is commandment number two? Is it be holy to be separate from people so that you're not tainted, so you're not unclean, to be holy as God is holy, or to love your neighbor as yourself? How do we do this? What happens when we're on mission with people and they begin to be detrimental to our holiness and detrimental to our mission? What do we do? Because we want to love people, but we also want to be holy. We're supposed to do both. How do we do this? And I love that Paul, uh, writing 2,000 years ago, is still relevant today. It, it's amazing to me that in Scripture, we can read a letter that was written to a certain group of people at a certain time, a long time ago, who had different problems, didn't live in technology, and yet, and yet, it can be so relevant to our lives. So why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to be in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you've been with us on our journey through 2 Corinthians, uh, you'll kind of remember the progression. We started with grace, the grace of God. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We start out seeing that Paul looks through the lens of God's grace when he looks at people, which is beautiful. And then he begins to talk about the gospel. He talks about this new covenant and how this new covenant, which is the gospel, is so great, so grand, so amazing, so beautiful that it makes the old covenant which was a very good thing, looks small and dingy and dim. That's how great it is. It's so beautiful, so bright, that the old covenant looks 
dim. And then Paul said, and we are ambassadors of this. We are, we are entrusted with this message, with this ministry. We, we are ministers of reconciliation, that God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting humanity's sins against them, and entrusting us with that message. He's making his appeal through us, which is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And then Paul says, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Now, there's two aspects to that. The first aspect is a personal aspect. Uh, this is where we get the idea of sanctification. Because he's talking to a church, and he says, be reconciled to God. So they've already been reconciled to God, and yet he says, be reconciled to God. So they've been reconciled by what Jesus did. They've been justified but now they're in the process of becoming uh, who they already are. This, this amazing identity of righteous, holy, complete in Christ, right? This, this new identity, which is so amazing. They, and just like us, are on this journey of beginning to live like the identity that they already have. And we call this process sanctification, okay? And, and during this process of sanctification, it's God who is completing the work. It says he will finish the work that he started in us, but he's invited us to participate with him in the process of sanctification. And we can do this by fixing our eyes on Christ, by orienting our hearts towards God, by sowing to the Spirit rather than sowing to the flesh. And what happens is we begin to reap the Spirit. We begin to look more like Jesus. We begin to live in this identity that we already have, which is beautiful. It's amazing. But when we don't participate in the process of sanctification, we receive the grace of God in vain. Now, there's a second side to this. And, and in chapter 6, Paul says, God has invited us to partner with him on ministry, which this should blow our minds because we are the slaves of God. I mean, we're his creations. We're not equal to God. It'd be like me talking to an aunt saying, hey, come partner with me as I, as I you know, am a pastor. That, that doesn't make What? No. Come be in my little ant, little farm. I mean, that's what, that's what we do. But God says, we're not, not, he doesn't refer to us here as, as his slaves, but as his partners in ministry. That we are partnering with God in ministry. And as we partner with God in ministry, we're not receiving the grace of God in vain. But as we don't partner with God in ministry, we're receiving the grace of God in vain. And then Paul lays out two problems. Two issues, one last week and one today, for how we can receive the grace of God in vain, whether personally or in partnering with God on mission. And the first one is this. Uh, he says, he says to the Corinthians, you think that you're held back by us. You think that, that the, the rules of, that, that God gives you or the laws God gives you, the commands God gives you, those are restricting you. He says, actually, it's not restricting you because God is loving and he's only telling you how he created you to live. So when you live according to the way that God says, you're just working the way that you're supposed to work. It just, that's the way it's supposed to be. Imagine if I had a CD uh, of Mozart. Uh, I hear Mozart makes you smarter, okay? So you've got Mozart, beautiful music. And I said, man, I just want you to listen to this one track. It's amazing. It is beautiful. And then I uncovered a blender and I dropped the CD into the blender. And I was like, do you hear that? Do you hear that sound? You hear that, that high-pitched squeal? Isn't that amazing? It's, no, it's not, because it wasn't created to be in a blender. It's created to be in a CD player, you know, 
right, rewind it, right, CD player. And when you hear it through that, it's beautiful. Same way, we were created to work a certain way, to live a certain way, and when we live according to that way, it works. It makes sense. We live life of freedom. We live a life abundantly like Jesus came, lived, and died for us to have. But Paul said, you're actually restricted by your own affections, by your own desires. Your own desires are enslaving you. They're restricting you. It's your own desires that are the problem. And so Paul says, widen your hearts to the grace of God. Don't receive the grace of God in vain, so widen your hearts. Hey, be careful of your own desires because they can restrict you. And today he's going to lay, uh, lay out problem number two. So 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, I know that most of us here are farmers and that in your farming, you don't use any technology. You just use oxen to pull your plows. And so most of you already get this and and I get that. Just bear with me. There might be a few of us who who don't. Okay, so what happened is a couple thousand years ago, it was basically an agrarian society. Uh, So there was a lot of produce that happened. And at some point in time, there was a farmer, Farmer A. And farmer A is using a plow to plow his field and he's exhausted. And he thinks to himself, self, there's got to be a better way. I'm getting tired. I don't get very much done. By the end of the day, I'm just exhausted. And there's an oxen over there and he seems pretty strong. I wonder if I could get him to pull my plow. And so he invents a thing called a yoke which was a, a, a wooden uh, piece that would go over the shoulders of the oxen and you would strap him in and then the, the yoke would be attached to the oxen's yoke and then the oxen would pull the yoke as the farmer just kind of hung out behind it, right? And he's thinking to himself, this is a good idea. Brilliant. So he patents it, he packages it, he starts to sell it, mass produces it, uh, gets it made in China and it, it's great, right? Now, Farmer B. Farmer B says, wait a second, that's a good start. But what I want to do now is I want to, you know, pull Microsoft and, and Apple and rip off his idea, but just make it a little bit different. If I can get this much done with one oxen, what could I do with two? <gasps> yeah, it's going to be amazing. So he gets two oxen. He invents a, a double yoke. So there's this, this yoke, this big wooden thing that goes over both oxen, straps them both in, connects them both to the plow, and he thinks to himself, this is going to be amazing. And he starts the plow and he finds out that sometimes he gets way more done. And sometimes he doesn't. In fact, sometimes he gets less done than, when he, than what he gets with one oxen. And he starts thinking to himself, what's going on? How in the world is this? I've got two oxen, double the strength, but sometimes I get less done. How, why is that? And so there's this word, this, this Greek word that was invented. It's kind of a, a two-part word, and here's what it means. Uh, this is the unequally yoked word. Uh, it, it says, um, it's called to pull the yoke in a different direction than one's fellow. See, you had one oxen that was motivated in the direction that he was supposed to go to plow the field. And then you had oxen number two that sometimes was motivated to go in a different direction. And so now he's pulling against oxen number one. And so now oxen number one isn't just pulling the plow, but he's pulling the other oxen and it makes him more exhausted, more tired. And so they are what they would call unequally yoked. It makes sense, right? So this, this beautiful word picture. And so Paul says, hey, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. 
Now, an unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, someone who doesn't believe that Jesus came, lived, died, and raised from the grave, that's what, that's, that's what an unbeliever is. It's someone who doesn't believe in the gospel. And so Paul says, don't be unequally yoked with a particular type of person, and it is an unbeliever. Why is that? He goes on, he says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Paul uses all these different comparisons, these two things that are opposites. He says, he says what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness. What he's saying is basically, you can't be righteous and lawless at the exact same time. So, for instance, you can't jaywalk and not jaywalk at the same time. Jaywalking, anyone know who that that is? It means to go across the road where there's no crosswalk. And Paul is saying, you can't jaywalk and not jaywalk at the exact same time. It's impossible. He says you can't loiter and not loiter at the same time. You can't commit a crime and not commit a crime at the same time. It's impossible. These things are mutually exclusive. So what partnership do they have with one another? He says, uh, what fellowship does light and darkness have? If you've got a room that is completely absent of light, absent of light, it's dark. But once you introduce some light to it, it's no longer dark anymore. Where there's light, there is no darkness. Now it may be a dimmer light, it may be a brighter light, but there's no darkness where there is light. He says, uh, what about Christ and Belial? Now, Belial, that, that is a, that's a Greek word that basically means the personification of everything evil, okay? So the person who is the personification of everything evil, that is the devil, the enemy, Satan, okay? What, what, what does Christ have to do with him? No, they're opposites. You can't, you have these different opposites. And I love the words that are used. Uh, partnership, fellowship, accord, agreement. Th- these, these words are great. So I looked them up. Partnership is an association of two or more people in collaboration, Uh, Fellowship is a friendly association with people who share one's interest or have a similar aim or goal. Uh, Accord, that's a vehicle made by Honda. (laughs) That was definition A. Definition B is being in harmony or consistent with. Agreement means the absence of incompatibility between two things. Inconsistency. Isn't this beautiful? Paul says, okay, here's why I don't want you to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Here's why I don't want you to have a relationship that is so close that you are so close to this person emotionally that they have the ability to turn you in the other direction, to pull against you because an unbeliever has a different aim, a different goal, different desires, a different direction than a believer. A believer is headed towards Jesus. A believer is oriented towards God. A believer is sowing to the Spirit. And an unbeliever, because they don't believe, just by definition, isn't headed towards Jesus. Their eyes aren't fixed on Jesus. Their heart isn't oriented towards God. They're not sowing to the Spirit. They're sowing to the flesh. They're headed in a different direction. And so Paul says, be careful. I don't want you to be in a relationship that is so close that it will pull your heart, pull your life, uh, unfix your eyes on Jesus, make you begin to sow to the flesh because it's gonna make you ineffective in pursuing Christ and ineffective in partnering with God in the gospel. He goes on, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, I will make my dwelling among them. He's quoting God. And he says, I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is beautiful. This is an amazing promise that God gives. He's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. And it says, therefore, 
In response to this promise, go out from their midst. Be separate, right? Be a people that is separate. Israel was a nation of priests that was called to be separate from the other nations. So go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Okay, God makes these promises. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Therefore, separate yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Don't touch anything that's unclean. It says, then... I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the Old Testament. This is Paul quoting a number of different passages from the Old Testament, and it's saying that God said, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, so act this way, and then I will fulfill my promises. Now, this is a little bit confusing in our day and age, because we live post-cross, But pre-cross, the people of God had two types of covenants that that God made with them. One was an unconditional covenant. And this was a covenant that he made with Abraham. Through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. But he also had conditional covenants that he made with the people. That if you act this certain way, if you live this certain way, then I will bless you and the land will be blessed and you will get to continue in the land. But if you don't, you're not going to be blessed. Uh, you're not going to get to live in the land. And we see this back when the, the nations, uh, the Israel split the northern and southern kingdom. And then the, the nation of uh, Assyria came and destroyed the northern kingdom in 722. And in 586, the southern kingdom got uh, destroyed by Babylon. And Ezekiel said he saw the presence of God leaving the temple. This is a conditional covenant. So Paul refers back to this conditional covenant. And then he fast forwards us to now. Now that we are post the cross, he says this, and it's beautiful. Since we have these promises, beloved, isn't that great? Since we already have these promises, why? Because not only did God make unconditional covenants, he also made a conditional covenant, and that conditional covenant was fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus lived up to the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus did what it took for us to fulfill our end of the bargain of the covenant of living a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life, and on the cross, he took all of our sin upon himself, And we got his righteousness. That that verse that we just uh, recited, it sums up the entire Bible. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's beautiful. Paul says, since we have that, since it's already done, we already have the promises of God, there's only one way to live that makes sense. And it says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Therefore, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of who we are now, in light of our new great identity, let us live up to this identity. Let us live in this way to be holy, to be set apart, to be righteous, to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. First thing, so important to read, so important that we forget so often, there's this word that says ourselves. Who are we supposed to cleanse? ourselves, okay? I know, I know, I hear things and I think, oh, my wife really needs to hear this. My buddy really needs, he's really struggling with this. I hear it for other people so often and not myself. Paul says, start with yourself, just like Jesus said, start with yourself. Look at your sin first. It's a log, there's a speck, right? Cleanse ourselves, which is beautiful. However, it still begs the question, holiness and love. Righteousness and mercy, What do we do? 
Okay, we're supposed to cleanse ourselves, we're supposed to separate ourselves, and yet we're supposed to be in the world. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we do this? It seems like these two are in competition. And we find this in God. We find the solution in God himself. God is is mind-blowing, and he really is. And we think about God's holiness. And this just means to be set apart to be different, to be unique, that there's none like him in all the world. Now, holiness is also kind of an attribute of his other attributes. It's, it's, an, it's a characteristic of his other attributes. So God's righteousness. God is holy in his righteousness. And typically when we think about holiness, we think about his holy righteousness. We think, think about his holy majesty. That, there, that God is so righteous, so right, so perfect that, that anyone else who we've ever imagined being righteous pales in comparison to God's grand righteousness. God's majesty. He's so majestic. He's so sovereign. He rules over us so greatly that anyone who has any amount of power pales in comparison to God's sovereignty. But it's also a characteristic of his goodness. God is holy in his goodness. God is so good. He's so utterly, purely, perfectly good that anyone who's done anything good or is any amount of good pales in comparison to God's unbelievable, utter goodness. And there's this character trait of God called his immutability. That's just another big word uh, that means he doesn't change. It means that he is always all of his attributes all the time. Now, for me personally, this is hard to understand because my only understanding of, of characteristics is through people. So, for instance, my dad, my earthly father, sometimes he acted out of love and sometimes he acted out of anger. Sometimes he punished me out of love and sometimes he punished me out of frustration because he's not perfect. And so I only understand characteristics through humans, so, which means that sometimes he was angry, sometimes he was loving, sometimes he was righteous, sometimes he was good, sometimes he was merciful, and sometimes he wasn't. But that's not the way it is with God. Is God is always all of his attributes all the time. They are united in him. God isn't righteous sometimes, he's righteous always, even when he's merciful. God is not just sometimes, he's just all the times, even when he's loving and grace-filled. Okay, God is always all of these all the times. This is why Jesus could say, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He could say, it's to love God and love people. In fact, all the other laws, the law and the prophets, they hang on these two commandments. That if you fulfill these two commandments, you fulfilled all the law. Love God and love people and you'll be holy. This is why Matthew doesn't contradict Luke. Matthew says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And Luke said, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Or Peter quoting the Old Testament saying, be holy as God is holy. Or John saying, be loving because God is love. It's all the same. That if we love God and we love people, we will necessarily become more holy. That's the way that it is. That we become more holy as we become more loving. Think about it this way. We're called to be on mission. So it's like we're two oxen. Or or we're just one, just me. I'm I'm just one oxen and I've got a yoke on me. And then I'm plowing a field. And then I've got another oxen with me that's yoked to me. I'm I'm so relationally connected to this person that that I'm yoked to this person, right? My my, uh, direction is, is, is affected by them because I'm so connected. And we're plowing a field, but the field that we're plowing is oxen food. 
Which means the more that I plow in the right direction, the more, the more efficiently I plow, the more I put effort into plowing, the better it is for me. Because it's oxen food. And I eat oxen food. And the better it is for my buddy over here who's an oxen, who eats oxen food. So the more we plow this field of oxen food, the better it is for both of us. But lining this oxen field, this oxen food field, is a tongue twister, right? No, but lining the field is sugar-coated poison. And my buddy over here has got a sweet tooth, like you wouldn't believe. And so I'm trying to plow this field for my good and for his good, but he's going over to the sugar-coated poison, and he's dragging me with him, and I'm not able to effectively plow this field. And I'm getting more and more exhausted, So Paul says, hey, here's the deal. Don't be unequally yoked with someone who's headed in a different direction because you're headed towards Jesus. You're headed towards God. You're sowing to the Spirit. And if you have someone that is so closely connected to you relationally, they're going to move your eyes from Jesus, which is bad for you, but it's also bad for them. So the most loving thing that I can do is to be holy as God is holy right? It's to be like Jesus because Jesus was the most loving person ever, the most grace-filled person ever. So the more I'm made like Jesus, the more loving, grace-filled, and merciful I become. The most loving thing I can do is to become holy, and the most holy thing I can do is to be loving. They're one in the same in God, in Christ. We typically swing the pendulum one direction or the other, Either we're all about being loving and grace-filled and just pouring out mercy and just acceptance and it doesn't matter and whatever, or we're over here saying, no, no, we gotta be holy. We gotta be separate. We gotta be set apart. We can't touch any unclean thing. We've gotta cleanse ourselves. We've gotta be careful. And we do one or the other, but here's the thing, that's an oxymoron. That's an oxymoron. You cannot truly be holy as God is holy and not be loving and merciful as God is merciful. You cannot as well be loving your neighbor truly and not be being made more holy. It's impossible. If you truly, really, deeply, actually love your neighbor, you will necessarily become more holy, more like God, more like Jesus. Because real love draws us into holiness, and real holiness draws us into love. That's the way that it is. This is the way that God set it up. This is why it's so beautiful that in God, he is both righteous, holy, loving, merciful, perfect, all of them, all the time, at the exact same time. And in him, as we fix our eyes on Christ, as we orient our hearts towards God, as we sow to the Spirit, we reap the Spirit. As we drink deeply from the well that will not run dry, as we feast on Christ, the more we're made like him and the more we are made loving towards our neighbor, inviting them in, which means the more we're able to effectively participate in the thing that we were created to do. I don't care what your skills are or what your job is. You were created to be on mission for God. Perhaps you're gifted as a welder. Then weld for Jesus and any time and any chance you get, represent him to the people around you. If you were created to be a, a housewife or a house dad, then represent Jesus the best you can to the people that are around you. That is your first calling, to be an ambassador for Christ. And as you participate with God as an ambassador for Christ, you're going to find more fulfillment in what you do. And Paul says, yes, because this is so important, 
be careful because there are relationships that are so close, whether that's a marriage, a dating relationship, or just a really close friendship. There are, there are friendships that are so close, that tie you so close emotionally that they can pull you off course. You've got to be careful. If that's the case, you need to set some boundaries. If there, if there are, are tendencies you have in your life towards certain sins, maybe, maybe you have a tendency towards gossip, maybe you have a tendency towards lust or a tendency towards uh, drunkenness, whatever your tendency is towards where the enemy's got your number and he's always trying to lead you into that, you've got to be aware and you've got to be careful. So as you go out and you're all things to all people, as Paul said, as you're being, putting no obstacle in the way of anyone coming to Jesus and you're at work and you're hanging out, and, and you're chatting with your buddy, point him to Jesus. And when you invite him to your home, point him to Jesus. When he invites you to his home, point him to Jesus. But if you're struggling with alcoholism or drunkenness and he invites you to go to the bar, you can draw a line and say, no, that's not gonna be good for me. That's not gonna be healthy or helpful for me. If you struggle with gossip and there's a place you know that gossip happens, you might have to say no and not go there because it, the more that you are drawn into sin, the less holy you become and the less loving you become, the less effective you become for them being pointed to Jesus. This is what we do. Don't be unequally yoked because you're headed in a direction and is the most beautiful, fulfilling direction ever. And as you do this, you become effective in partnering with God in the gospel, pulling other people along with you towards Christ. Just be careful that they don't pull you away. And you've got to be continually in prayer, continually knowing, God, help me. Give me wisdom. I don't know, is this too much? You gotta have people in your life that, that speak truth in your life and can, and can call you out and let you know because this is so amazing that we've got to be careful so we can be effective for the gospel so that we can be united and continually reconciled to God in our hearts. It's beautiful that God has reconciled us. It's beautiful that he is reconciling us and it's amazing that he has invited us to partner with him in the gospel. So don't receive the grace of God in vain. Be careful. Heavenly Father, we need you. God, we need you. Thank you so much that you are so beautiful. God, that you are the most mesmerizingly beautiful being ever. And that you've called us to fix our eyes on you. That you've invited us to fix our eyes on you, to sow to your spirit, help us to do that. God, help us to be careful of our desires that will draw us away. Help us to be careful of the relationships that could draw us away. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to be in the world, but not of the world. That we'd be able to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves as we go out and be ambassadors for your name, your glory, your honor, and your praise. Help us, God. We need you. We need you, Lord. And so we cry out in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.